Welcome to the Sperber Prize podcast, a show where I'll talk to winners and nominees of Fordham's annual award given in honor of author Anne Sperber and her biography of Edward R. Murrow. The Sperber Prize seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs detailing the unseen backgrounds of some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. This season, we'll be looking at themes of sexism, ethics, technology, objectivity, and more. I'm your host, Rena Lokai. Today I'll be talking to journalist, writer, and political commentator Stephen Roberts. Roberts' book, Koki, A Life Well Lived, tells the story of his wife Koki. She was a mother, daughter, journalist, author, and all-around amazing person to everyone around her. Stephen, thank you so much for being here to tell her story. All right. So first, I guess I just wanted to start with why you decided to write this book, especially since your wife has written a bit about herself in the past. What made you want to write her story? It's a good question. When I gave the eulogy at Koki's funeral, I told a lot of stories, some of them pretty funny. Folks were laughing in the cathedral. Some were crying. A lot of people came up to me after the funeral and said they wanted to hear more stories. And it's really almost that simple. But as I got into the book, I realized that there were really two parts to Cokie's story, the public Cokie and the private Cokie. And the public Cokie was pretty well known. I mean, she had been written a lot about, uh, as you say, she'd written herself. But the private Cokie was a different story. She was someone who, despite her enormous celebrity and, and visibility, took time every single day to help a friend, every single day. Those stories were not nearly as well known. In fact, I heard stories from her friends that I had never heard. <laughs> so I don't think that the wider world had heard them either. I wanted very much to tell the story of a woman whose life was so devoted to other women and to their strengths and their solidarity. She devoted so much of her time and energy to helping other women, whether it was in fighting for them to get more airtime at ABC or simply going to every funeral of everybody's parents, every maternity ward in the city. Because she was a baby freak. I mean, if there was a baby with it in the zip code, she found it and scooped it up. She was enormously important to vast numbers of people as a friend. And I wanted to tell those stories, and I wanted those stories to be told in the voices of the women who were her friends. I didn't want to be the guy who tried to mansplain <laughs> women's feelings. I wanted to be the narrator. I wanted to be the mouthpiece, but I wanted the women to speak for themselves. And that's what I tried to do in the book. In the end, I guess it sounds a little trite, but I really believe this very deeply. I, I believe that the private stories in the end are more important than the public stories because Look, not everybody can be a best-selling author, and not everybody can be a TV star. Not everybody can have the enormous visibility and public influence that she had. Everybody can be a good person. Everybody, every day, can learn something from her private life. In the end, telling those stories, and 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 uh, you know, there is uh, a quote in the book where a friend of hers says, "You know, I don't, I don't want a bracelet that says WWJD. I want a bracelet that says WWCD. What would Koki do?" I, and since I've written that book, and I've had countless people, readers and friends, say to me, "I really ask myself that now. I really have learned that from the book." and that's very gratifying. Yeah, I mean, as I was going through, I just could not believe reading about this incredible woman and seeing not just 
how successful she was in her career, but how successful she was as a person. It was just beautiful, like a beautiful example and a beautiful role model to follow after. So how did you go about the act of actually writing this book? Because I imagine it could have been very hard at times. Well, no one forced me to do this book. I wanted to do it, and I embraced it. Everybody grieves and mourns in their own way. Grief is the most universal of human rituals. When we think of all the rituals that tend to mark our lives, not everybody gets married. Not everybody has children. Not everybody graduates from school. Everybody grieves. It's the most universal ritual. And it's true in every culture. Everybody gets to do it their own way. And uh, I still live in the house that Koki and I shared for over 40 years. I sleep in the same bed. I can literally, Rena, look out the window of where I'm sitting right now and see the spot in the garden where we were married in 1966. I am sitting at the computer where I wrote the, most of this book. And this, this room is directly above the room I write about uh, when I first came to this house in 1963. Do the math. 1963, the first time I ever visited Washington, the first time I ever was in this house, I was 20 years old. And so I embraced it. That's the way I grieve. Now, it is absolutely true that there were times when, particularly in talking to her friends, and I talked to over 50 of them, virtually every one of those interviews ended in tears, theirs and mine. (laughs) That's the price you pay. I know, again, it sounds trite, but I believe this is deeply as I believe anything in my 80 years of life. And that is that the most important decision you ever make is who you marry, or at least partner with. It doesn't have to be a marriage. It certainly doesn't have to be heteronormative. It can be any kind of partnership as long as it's real, as long as it's committed. The deeper the love you have for someone else, the deeper the pain when you lose them. Now, I think that's a bargain worth making every single time. <laughs> but you do pay a price for it. So there were times when this was very hard for me to remember, but that's what grief is about. The one thing I do know is you can't deny grief. Grief is like water. It'll seep through the cracks. It'll corrode your sense of well-being. You have to acknowledge it. You have to embrace it. And that's what I tried to do. But the hardest times are when I talk to her friends and, and we, when we remember together our loss. So you decided to go and write this book in sections the way that Cookie did one of her books as roles. Why did you think this was a more effective way of telling the story rather than just chronologically? Well, that's also a good question. You know, I think any writer of a book of, like this is faced with a, a basic structural problem. I mean, there are really only two basic ways to do a book like this. You do it chronologically or you do it thematically. You, you can alter at the edges these two approaches, but, you know, this is the eighth book I've written. So it's, I, you know, it's not the first time I've been faced with a problem like this. And I just felt that the thematic uh, structure would allow me to focus on her character and her experiences in more coherent ways. Because you take the evolution of her career, that uh, happened over many, many years. And if I were writing about our time in California when she, when she and I first started writing articles together, or our time in Greece when she made her first big breakthrough as a radio journalist, and then 
chronologically didn't pick up the thread of that story till a couple of years later. It just didn't make sense to me. And and she had had such a brilliant idea of organizing her first book in this way that I just felt, well, I'll just borrow it. I won't say steal. I'll just say I borrowed um, her her structure because I saw how it worked. I saw the, the, the structural advantages of writing uh, books according to a thematic structure than a, simply a chronological structure. So that that really was the answer. Also, you take the this, this story of her friendships. You know, her friendships were an important part of her life from the time she was a small child. And, you know, there's this, this wonderful account of uh, from one of her friends, of you know, when they were in high school. And I wanted to connect that dimension more than any of the other thematic chapters. I wanted that chapter, the chapter on friendship, to be the whole. I wanted it to be coherent. I wanted readers to see the through line, the threads. This is not a standard biography. This is, I don't see this as a traditional biography. It's, it's trying to highlight the most important elements and uh, themes of her life. How did you go about picking which stories to put in the friendship chapter? Because I'm sure you had so many others, because if she was doing something nice every day, that's 365 stories a year that you could pick to write about. Oh, that's true. It's a good observation. When I was editing the book with my editor, the, the same woman who edited eight of our books, the same publisher, same editor. So Claire knows our work, knows my approach, and, and we did move some things around. She made a couple of suggestions of taking, let's take this chunk and move it from this chapter into that chapter. But you're absolutely right about the friendship chapter. I had, frankly, I could have done a whole book on those stories. And um, the other editor, there were two, I had actually had two editors. My second editor kept saying, the phrase she kept using was, I want to prune away the undergrowth so the roses are more visible. So she actually had me cut out a fair number of stories that I originally uh, had put in. And there are two or three that I'm sorry I cut out. Not many, there are a few. But in any book like this, you, you try to select stories that, again, this is kind of a trite image, but this is the way I certainly thought that, uh, of it. They're pieces of a mosaic. They illuminate different themes, different dimensions. A couple of the stories, for instance, focus on her concern and care for people who are suffering serious illness. There were other stories relating to young mothers, which she was very, very, was very important to her. There were other stories about her fighting for people in a professional setting. There were other stories about, about dealing with, with people who had lost relatives. So I picked stories that I, I wanted to illustrate a dimension or a characteristic or a trait that she embodied and that taken together, the reader would have this full picture made up of these little pieces of the mosaic. And that was my strategy. So I want to talk a little bit about the journalism section. So you say that she decided to be a journalist in part because you were also going down that path. That, that's her, her words, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that she would have followed you into another profession had you gone a different way? I have no idea. I quote her in the book, I think, as saying that, you know, I wanted to be a journalist, thought of myself as a journalist from the time I was 12 years old. By 14, I got I'd gotten my first paycheck from a newspaper. You know, by 16, I was running the high school paper. The first day I arrived on a college campus, I went out for the campus newspaper. I had one week between graduating from college and working for the New York Times. I mean, 
that's who I've always been. And that's, and it's also my family heritage. I had relatives back in Europe and Russia who were newspaper editors. And I had an uncle who was a very accomplished writer. So it's just hard to know. You know, if I had been a doctor, would it have been different? I just don't know. It is certainly true that being married to me exposed her to the journalistic profession, but it wouldn't have worked if she didn't have the enormous talent to take advantage of it. So there were these two variables, right? In a sense, being married to me gave her an insight and an opportunity to pursue this life. But that was only the beginning. That was only the opening the door at best. You know, she had to walk through it, which she did. But would she have walked through another door that was less suited to her talents? Probably not, actually. You know, she's a pretty determined, forceful woman. She made her own decisions. As I've written about many times, you know, her family, her family tradition, if if mine was as journalists and writers, her family did politics. Her mother's maiden name was Claiborne. The Claibornes came to America in 1620. By all measures, they're one of the most prominent political families in all of American history. Of her two parents and her two siblings, of the five of them, she was the only one of the five who never ran for Congress. So in, in another world, another door opening, she would have walked through it to be a politician. As I say, if she had married a doctor, if she had married a chemist, would she be a chemist? I doubt it. <laughs> I think that it just happened that, that the world I helped open for her was a world she was so well suited to joining and excelling in. Well, like you said, she walked through that door and she flourished because she was an amazing, amazing journalist. What do you think it was about her that made her such a good journalist? Well, that's a good question, too. I think there are three or four answers to that, starting with the fact she's just so damn smart. Koki at her very best was actually on live television or live radio, where the ability to so quickly process information and come out with a coherent, intelligible, often funny analysis. I mean, you got to be just goddamn smart to be able to do that. You got to be really quick on your feet. But she was also very curious. You know, she had a wide ranging set of interests. One of my passions was not included in that, which is sports. She had absolutely no interest at all in sports. But also, let's remember, she was so soaked in politics. Like her seventh birthday party was at the Capitol. She understood politics better than anybody I ever met. And I've met a lot of really smart politicians and political analysts. You know, I tell the story in the book that when I was the New York Times correspondent in California in 1972, it was the uh, big primary between Humphrey and McGovern. We had a dinner the night or two before the primaries where there must have been a dozen New York Times reporters and editors who were in California. And I was the bureau chief, so I hosted a dinner party at our house. And we had a pool, you know, and all of these political experts bet on the outcome. And Koki won the pool going away. No one else was even close to how insightful she was. You combine how smart she was, you combine the the political instincts and, and understandings that she knew from a small child. It was just built into her DNA. But there was a third factor, which is that people trusted and liked her. She and I had a phrase that we would sometimes use with each other when we would go out covering politics and particularly covering voters. I mean, politicians are easy to cover. Voters are much harder to cover because you have to create a sense of communication, a sense of trust. And the phrase we used to each other was demartianization, meaning that you had to convince a voter you were not a Martian. And uh, she was brilliant at that. And, and it was partly her Southern heritage, 
Cokie could not be rude to someone. If she tried to be rude to someone, she couldn't do it. But people trusted her. They, they opened up to her. She gave them a sense of confidence that she would treat them fairly. I think that was a big part of it. Even when she was on television and, you know, and asking tough questions, people respected her. In her political journalism, the, she had this tremendous advantage of having grown up with. But when you think about the books she wrote and her sense of women's roles in history, Part of the reason why she was so attuned to that and, and was so insightful and valuable in understanding the role women had played is because she had seen it in her own life. Her own mother was a modern-day Abigail Adams. Her own mother's best friend, Lady Bird Johnson, was the modern incarnation of Dolly Madison. She grew up with women who were playing the same role that women had played historically. And so she didn't have to guess about this. She didn't have to read about this. She had lived it. She had seen it from the beginning. She had seen the power and, and tremendous value and influence women had had around her kitchen table. You don't have to read about Abigail Adams. She lived it. In addition to every all her personal skills, she had this gift of seeing history play out in front of her, seeing these historical patterns, which is a un very unusual experience for a historian to not just read about this, but to live it. How do you live history? It's almost a contradiction in terms, but she did. And, you know, there's that, one of my favorite lines of the whole book is when Lindy, after Cokie's dad is killed and Lindy decides to run for Congress, and she calls Lady Bird Johnson and says, Bird, I want to tell you I'm running for Hale C before you read about it. And Mrs. Johnson says, well, darling, that's wonderful, but how are you going to do it without a wife? I think that is one of the best lines in the whole book. But when you live that, when you know these women, when you have seen it up close, it gives you so much more of an extra. If you knew the relationship of Lady Bird Johnson and, and Lyndon Johnson, you understood on a totally different level the relationship of Abigail Adams and Dolly Madison and the countless other women she wrote. And interestingly enough, our daughter is carrying that on because our daughter's new book, which just came out this spring, is a biography of Edith Galt Wilson, who is, you know, Woodrow Wilson's wife and basically ran the country for two years after he had a, had a stroke in 1918. And so she's really carrying on her mother's mission of uncovering and celebrating the roles women have always played in history. It's very gratifying. So she, of course, was very, very smart, very knowledgeable, very political. But she also had something that I think is really important for journalism among all careers, but really for journalism is you need to have a passion for this kind of stuff and you need to have a passion for people because if you don't, then your work just won't show that. And she was very, very passionate. And I know you say multiple times that she was very passionate about women's issues and issues for children, but what would you say was her number one issue in regard to women and children? You know, you also have to remember, Rena, there was this whole other dimension to her life beyond journalism, you know, that even though she was such a celebrated and recognized journalist, it was always true that because of her background, there was still some part of her that was not satisfied by simply being a journalist. She wanted to be an activist. Now, she couldn't and didn't want to be an activist in a partisan way or a political way, but she found, particularly through the organization Save the Children, a way to be an activist on behalf of women and children around the world. And she went all over the world. I have right here on my desk one of my favorite pictures of her in Bangladesh talking to a small child. And that's the picture I want on my desk. 
again, this sounds trite, but the word I keep thinking about is empowering. She was not imposing views on women. She understood that true feminism was helping women make choices for themselves. Too often, ideological feminists, what they really mean is you should be free to make the choices I think are the right ones. <laughs> Koki never felt that way. Koki always truly believed that true feminism, and no one I ever met was a more ardent feminist in this sense. Her role was to help women make the choices for themselves. And that meant, in practical sense, uh, critical to this was education. She always bought into the notion that one of the most important things any development program could do was help girls stay in school because it delayed marriage, it delayed childbearing, it gave them skills to earn their own money and be independent of patriarchal customs and hierarchies. And so that was the key. The key was helping women be independent and be independent socially, be independent in terms of their educations, be independent economically. Big part of what a number of the programs she visited around the world were microcredit programs and others that taught women skills, marketing skills, craft skills that gave them the chance to have an independent income. She understood that one of the keys to women's independence in any culture, but particularly in more traditional cultures, where the male hierarchies were so powerful, was to have an independent income. And that, of course, also related to education. But there's something else about her attitude toward women that's very, very important. As I say, she was an enormously devoted and committed feminist in the very best sense of that word. But she always said over and over and over and over again, no matter what else we do, no matter how advanced we become in the professions, no matter how independent we become in terms of status and income, we cannot forget our traditional roles. We cannot forget that women are the caretakers, women are the nurturers, women are the keepers of the household flame. And instead of resenting it, we should embrace it. The moment that she most expressed this profoundly important insight, and it was more than an insight, it was a value. It was a foundational value for her, was helping women not only make progress, but also embrace traditional roles. And she tells the story. We used to go to the beach at a small Greek town called Marathon, which is known for other things. But for us, it was our neighborhood beach. And she went to this small museum that was there, and she's musing about what she sees in, the, in these cabinets and these displays. And she says, what are left of the men? You know, well, there might be an implement of war or something like this, but what are left of the women? The cooking pots, the sewing implements, the jewelry. All of these implements that define us as, as women in the best sense. And she has a line in that book, a line in her book where she says, I could have picked up those tools and put on those jewels and connected to my sisters over centuries. I felt so strongly that that was at the core of her being, at the core of her motivation, that on the back of her tombstone, it says, pick up the tools and put on the jewels. That's on her tombstone. It's there because it expresses the essence of her commitment to the sisterhood that was so central to her identity. So, you know, she helped with all these organizations. She wrote books about women's history. She was an amazing journalist, an amazing mother, an amazing wife. But what is the accomplishment about your wife that you are the most proudest of? Oh, dear. Well, again, this is going to sound trite, but you asked and, I, and I'm going to give you a trite answer. And, and if I boiled it down to one word, it would be love. That's what's behind so much of this. 
You could also say friendship, but friendship is part of a larger approach to life. We have six grandchildren. They range in age right now from, I guess, 17 to 21. The oldest is going to graduate from college on Saturday. Koki died that child's first week of college. I think the single biggest regret in Koki's life was not seeing those grandchildren grow up. I know that was her biggest regret. But she had such a capacity for loving her friends, loving her family, loving her husband. Number five grandchild, who's graduating from high school, and he's six foot four, and he's a football player, hockey player, and baseball player, the three-sport athlete. And he's an 18-year-old boy, right? And on his Instagram account is a picture of his grandma and a tribute to her. You don't get a lot of 18-year-old boys who have that sensibility, and that's the way she touched people. So really, that was her biggest accomplishment. I know this sounds trite, but it's really true for all of her celebrity. And she would say this too. At the end of her life, the thing she cared most about was being a loving person. There were a lot of other ways to celebrate her life, which are all of which are important. You know, as a public model, I can't tell you, you know, how many people have written to me who have read this book or have heard me speak about it and have talked about in very personal terms the impact she had on them as a professional. I had one woman who, you know, said her, her mother was an immigrant, would point at the television and say, that's who you should pattern yourself after. That's what it means to be a modern American woman. Be like Cokie. That woman is now the host of the nightly news on public broadcasting, by the way. I'm not Nawaz. If that was all she ever did in her life, that still would be enormously valuable and, and memorable. But that was only part of it. And it was actually, in my view, as I've said this to you a number of times now, it, it's not the most memorable part of her life. The most memorable part of her life was those daily ways in which she mattered to somebody else. And that was her greatest accomplishment. And she would she would agree. Pretty confident she would agree on there. I knew her pretty well. You know, we were married 53 years. I'd known her for 57. Yeah, she would agree. So I want to end with a question on the future population of journalists, the future population of specifically women journalists going into the field. What do you think her biggest piece of advice would be? Be fearless. Don't let the bastards grind you down. Be determined. You know, obviously, the world is different today than it was when she started out. When she started out, she tells the story, which I repeat in the book, of you know when she was first covering Capitol Hill, and there was this big congressional debate, and uh, it was over a budget. All the guys are asking about the fate of funding for some missile system. You know, she gets up and says, what about funding for mammograms in the bill? <laughs> you know, and if there was a woman there asking about mammograms, that question would not get asked, and it would not get answered. So she always understood the enormous value of having women everywhere representing different viewpoints, representing different perspectives. She would say, understand how important your role is. Understand how invaluable it is to have women's voices, women's experiences, women's values, women's perspectives as part of the journalistic process. Now, when she started, obviously, that was a much bigger problem than it is today. Who was it who CNN put out there to interview Donald Trump the other night? It wasn't Jake Tapper. It was Caitlin Collins, right? I have six former students on air at CNN today, and five of them are women. So it's a very different world you're entering than she entered in, you know, in the late 70s. But the basic goal, the basic mission, the basic value is still the same. 
Well, I wanted to just say thank you very much for talking to me. This was an incredible conversation. It was an incredible book. And to be honest, I read all the time and I have not had a book touch me or really her life that's touched me the way that it did. It, it was just incredible. Well, I'm, uh, uh, I'm happy to be helpful to you and good luck with your, with your podcast. Thank you all for tuning in this season. I hope you enjoyed talking through these themes of sexism, ethics, technology, and more. For the last time this season, I want to give a special thanks to today's guest, Stephen Roberts, to Fordham University, and to the Sperber Prize Committee for making this show possible. As always, if you want more information about the Sperber Prize, you can visit our website at sperberprize.com. I'm your host, Rena Lokai, and thanks for coming on this journey with me.